morning, y'all. I have a confession to start, and my confession is that I have a control problem. I'm a control freak, actually, so much so that this would drive me crazy. That was uh, not planned, but I'm just going to get this out of the way so I can look at you guys. You see, I also hate injustice, and I hate when things aren't fair, and that's a bad combination because I have this picture in my head of how society should look, and it seems like things are just drifting farther away from that. And as they continue to drift, I feel the frustration and the anxiety inside of me. And if you have a control problem like me, I think that our passage this morning is probably going to be a hard pill to swallow. So we might as well just get into it. So if you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to be in First Peter as we have been. And um, we are going to be starting at chapter 2, verse 11. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there now if not. We'll have the words on the screen. I'll let you guys control as I read out of the Bible. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, meaning non-believers, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one, to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were, like, you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, husbands, be, or likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, which we read about the last series, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. 
Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So pick your poison. There are a lot of things to get offended by in this passage. People will try to rewrite this passage, reword it so they don't offend anyone. They'll make all kinds of different claims about what this passage does and doesn't say. And you might be offended just by the verses themselves. I know this is a very anti-world message. And so the part of you that lives in the world is likely going to bristle against these words. And so if there's anything that I say that bothers you, I'm not apologizing for it, but I'm always open to have conversations. If you have questions, if you have pushback, concerns, or don't understand, I love to have conversations about this stuff. But we get bothered by this. Why? What's the words that make our insides jump? What are the words that we've been trained to hate by society? Be subject to, or more accurately, submit. Submit. We don't like this word. We have three separate instructions in this passage, all of which, by the way, although they were certainly written in a different context, are still applicable and still stand today. Do you know what control freaks like me hate to do? Submit. Let go. But this is what God instructs. You see, first we have submit to governing authorities. Submit to the government. Even the bad ones? Yes. Even the bad ones. And you might think, but when this was written, they didn't know about all of the oppression and injustice that would exist in 2023. But here's the truth. Their government was far more oppressive and tyrannical than anything we experience here. Their emperor, Nero, or any other governors could just drag anyone into the streets and murder them for any reason with no kind of recourse or response. Corruption has always existed. The government is corrupt by its very nature, always has been. I'm sorry to tell you if you really put your trust in politicians. Now, I'm not some conspiracy nut. That's just the facts. That's the way it is. That's why it's written all the way back in the Old Testament. In the book of Ecclesiastes, it says this. It says, don't be surprised if you see a poor person being oppressed by the powerful and if, and if justice is being miscarried throughout the land. For every official is under orders from higher up, and matters of justice get lost in red tape and bureaucracy. That could have been written yesterday. Why are governments corrupt? Well, because no human being is moral or holy enough to rule righteously. Even the seemingly good leaders are still corrupt and imperfect and subject to temptation and corruption. So what are you going to do? How do you respond? Are you going to smash the walls and burn the establishment down? Is that how we respond? Try to fight really hard to get leaders into place that we think will do a better and more fair job of ruling? Are you going to be defiant and rebellious? Are you going to fight against the man and try to dismantle the system in Jesus' name? What do you do with corrupt leaders and corrupt governments? God says, submit to them. What? How does that make any sense? But Peter doesn't stop with citizens and governments. He then moves on to slaves and masters. 
It says in verse 18, servants, and don't get confused or mince words. This is talking about slaves. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. You know who really loved this Bible verse? Those who instituted and participated in the American slave trade. You know what verse they would read to their slaves to try to keep them from misbehaving? This one. And so many people take this and say, see, the Bible condones slavery. I knew it. The Bible condones slavery. No, it doesn't. The Bible's just realistic, and God knows the nature of man, and he knew the cruel systems that we would put in place. But the Bible doesn't condone slavery. It just teaches how to live in a world where slavery exists, and if you are a slave yourself, it teaches you how you can exist in this world. You know what Bible verse, no slave master, read to their slaves? In Corinthians, when it says, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. So God does want his people to be free. You can read him breaking the bonds of slavery in the Bible. The Bible doesn't condone slavery, just like the Bible doesn't condone government oppression or injustice. But God knows the nature of mankind. And the thing is, we know that one day, none of this brokenness is going to exist. All the corruption, all the evil, all of the injustice will come face to face with the wrath of God, and he will end all of it. But Remember, the entire reason that Peter's writing this letter is to instruct Christians on how to best live until that day comes. On how to best live in this in-between where corruption and injustice and slavery are alive and well. And slavery is not over. There, there are more slaves in the world today than at any other point in human history. And the Bible condones none of it. But God knows the nature of mankind. You know, there are Christian slaves right now in positions where they can't get free. They're Christians in positions of severe oppression that they cannot escape from. How are these Christians meant to live? Peter writes to these exiled Christian slaves and tells them, submit. Submit to the masters. If you have a way out, take it, but if you don't, submit. What? How does that make any sense? But Peter still isn't done. He moves from citizens and governments to slaves and masters and then husbands and wives. He says then, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now there's a passage in Ephesians that outlines how Marriage is supposed to function. It says to husbands and wives, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It tells wives, submit to their husbands. It tells husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and laid down his life for her. Now, anyone can apply it to their marriage. Anyone can, but it's written specifically for Christian marriages when both parties are believers. And it gives us this picture when done well of the relationship between Jesus and his church. But people hate the word submit. They hate it. And so when they read it, they love to make submission conditional. They'll say things like, wives, submit to your husbands if and only if he first loves you like Christ loves the church. And so a lot of Christian women will adopt this mindset that 
if my husband isn't being a good husband, then I ain't submitting to diddly squat. He can take a hike. But right here in Peter's letter, this passage about wives submitting to their husbands, it's referring to husbands who aren't even believers. Husbands who don't even follow the word. And you say, we're supposed to still submit to them? And God says, yeah. Now, does this mean that if you are in an abusive relationship, that you are required by God to stay in it and endure that abuse and potentially even lose your life? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. In 1 Corinthians, actually, the Bible says if one party abandons the marriage, the other isn't obligated to uphold it. If one party abandons the marriage, the other isn't obligated to uphold it. And make no mistake, abusing your spouse is abandoning your marriage. Now, God can heal and restore relationships, and you need to use discernment, and I've seen it, and I think every effort to reconcile should be made, but if you are married to someone who verbally, emotionally, and physically abuses you and will make no effort to change those ways, they have abandoned the marriage, and you can leave that situation. But what Peter's talking about here isn't that. And this isn't even really just wives to husbands. It's really talking about believers who have an unbelieving spouse. He says that the love that you have for your spouse and your responsibility to your spouse doesn't go away just because they aren't the person that you'd like them to be. And your love and responsibility to them also doesn't go away even if they're not the person that God has called them to be. You're still accountable to them. Even if they're a selfish, self-absorbed jerk who doesn't show up the way they should. And just like with citizens and governments and just like with slaves and masters, you read this and it's like, how can this be what God has called us to? Submit to people who aren't good. Submit to governments that are corrupt. Submit to slave masters that are cruel. Submit to spouses who aren't even believers. And, all, and in all these situations, the question then becomes, why? why? Why would God call us to do something so seemingly backwards? Yes, we're waiting for Jesus to return and sort all of this mess out, but why won't we like fight in the meantime, why won't we take out our sword and try to like take control until he comes back? And what's interesting is that when we take on that mindset of thinking that God might have it wrong here, and this isn't what he wants us to do, the perspective that we've subconsciously adopted is if we just listen to God on this, nothing's ever going to change. What we're innately saying in response to these passages, if we refuse to submit is what God has instructed is lacking, and we need to take matters into our own hands. But you see, the way of Jesus was and is submission. He came to serve and not be served. He loved those who persecuted him. He prayed for those who spit in his face and beat him, and then he died for those who betrayed him, including you and I. And through Jesus' submission, to God's will and God's plan, everything changed. That's why Peter lays it all out there. He says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 
For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You see, Jesus exemplified and gave us a direct example of how to live. Not only through his death and resurrection did he change everything, but simply by the way he lived and was loving people, the message he was sharing, he was starting a revolution. Society was starting to change, and that's why they killed him. People were starting to notice. People were starting to question how things function because he was showing them a better way. If you were with us last year when we read through the book of Acts, the same thing happened with those who started the church in the book of Acts. They weren't fighting the man and trying to change laws and leaders. They were literally just living the way Jesus lived and sharing that with whoever would listen, and things started to drastically change in the societies around them. So much so that basically every church leader was put to death. But not because they were rowdy, not because they were fighting, not because they were killing leaders, not because they were strong-arming the government and trying to take control, but because the message and the way of life that they were sharing was so profound that people were no longer satisfied with the way things were. They saw something better. We've been so programmed to believe that being right or being strong or being influential or just being loud is what is required to really change things. But do you know why I find myself consistently amazed and in awe of Jesus? Do you know what keeps me coming back and falling down at his feet time and time again? Do you know what it is about him that has transformed me as a person? It's not because he's right, although he is right. It's not because he's strong, although he is strong. And it's not because he's influential, and he's definitely influential. I admire those things. I'm amazed by those things. But the thing that's changed me is that no matter what I've done to him, he loves me. I'm still wrapping my mind around that one. It's because even though I fail him time and time again, even though I betray him, Time and time again, he's always there with open arms and grace for me. Even when my heart isn't even fully in it. When I like begrudgingly drag myself to church or like pick up my Bible when I don't really want to. Even when I don't really feel like being there, he's always ecstatic to have a moment with me. He runs to me. He always shows up for me no matter what I've done. You guys, I'm not good. I I cannot emphasize it enough. I'm not a good person. My thoughts, my actions, my temptations, my insecurities, my pride, the stuff that none of you guys see, the list goes on and on and on. Jesus knows all of that junk and none of it changes the way he feels about me. And that leveled me. That's what changed me. Not his power, not his morality, although they're amazing, but his love is what changed me. You see, love is truly the only thing that changes the human heart. It's the only thing that changes the human heart. And it's one of the hardest things to do. You know, let's just be real. I could stand up here and guilt trip anyone into coming down to the front of the church and saying a prayer. Guilt trip you. Jesus, I feel so bad. Save me. But if all it is is guilt, they're going to fall away in no time. You know, you could scare someone into coming down to the front of the church and saying a prayer. Jesus, save me. I don't want to go to hell. But if all it is is fear, they're going to fall away in no time. 
Love is the only thing that truly changes, and it's the only thing that fully retains. There is no love apart from God. He is love. You've never experienced love in your life that didn't come from God. And so if you want to make a decision to follow Jesus, I don't want it to be out of guilt or fear. I want it to be out of love. Jesus, you see me and you know me like you know all of it. You know all the mess and the brokenness and the hurt and my insecurities and all of the mess. You know all of it and you still love me and you died for me and you pursue me. Jesus, you've shown me that you are the only thing in this world worth following and so my heart's yours. I trust you with my life more than I trust me with my life. Do you see the difference between these prayers? Going back to Peter and his instruction to submit. This love Jesus is calling us to, this life he's calling us to live, they are the only thing that have the power to change the broken institutions and hurt in the world. Now, if you're a social justice warrior and your approach is to scream louder and just like bombard people with awareness, I don't know how to tell you this, but you're spinning your wheels. Take it from Christians who have tried that and still try that, and it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Just like a sermon, you can make people feel guilty for a second. You can make them come down and post online or pledge allegiance to your cause, but once the guilt wears off, they're not going to care anymore. They need love. They need Jesus to change their hearts. And if you try to give them Jesus and they reject him and things don't change the way we want them to, we keep trying, but at some point we got to trust that either way, one day God is going to change things to exactly how they're supposed to be. You can fight slavery with strength. You can try to overpower them and threaten them with violence. You can try to incite fear into the hearts of these human traffickers and slave masters. You might even get them to let a few people go, but as soon as the fear is gone, they'll come back with a vengeance. You see, they need love. They need a new heart. And Jesus is the only one that can give them a new heart. And if you try to give them Jesus and they reject him and things don't change the way we want them to, we keep trying. But at some point, we've got to trust that either way, one day God is going to change things to exactly the way they're supposed to be. And you can badger your spouse. You can belittle them and make them feel like garbage for not providing or not showing up and doing this or that or the other. You can try to hit them over the head with Jesus and force them to come to church with you. You can do all those things. Or you can serve them. You can love them no matter what, as unconditionally as you can. You can encourage them and build them up and pray for them even when they don't deserve it. Man, I've seen the love of God invade relationships that had absolutely no hope and bring them back together. But love is always the foundation of that, and serving is always the stepping stone of that. You know why submission is so terrifying? Because it leaves us vulnerable. It leaves us in a position where we can be taken advantage of. And society, society will tell you adamantly not to trust anyone, not to give your heart to anyone, not to submit to anyone but yourself. Society will scream at you that if you put anyone before yourself, they will inevitably take advantage of you and your kindness. Those who submit become doormats. Isn't that right? 
That's why you don't want to submit. Because God tells you, or because society tells you that if you are that kind of person, the world will walk all over you. But have you ever considered that with how you live, maybe you take advantage of the grace of God? Maybe you walked all over Jesus. Maybe you still walk all over Jesus with how you live and he still loves you anyway. And maybe you're like me and every time you consider that, it just like rocks you to your core. And so I know, and if you've experienced that, you know that that kind of love has the power to change the narrative. And so maybe there's something to the way Jesus instructs us to live. And maybe the reason we feel so hesitant to submit and put others above ourselves is because the enemy, the enemy also knows that love and submission have the power to change our families and our communities. And so the enemy is screaming in our ears and will sell us any lie to keep us from living that way. But you see, in order to live this way, it takes a lot of trust, man. It takes trust that God is in control. It takes trust that God sees everything and will judge righteously takes trust that God doesn't need your candidate in office to change the country. I wonder what the rest of the world would think if Christians didn't freak out when corrupt politicians do corrupt things. If we still had peace regardless of what they do. I wonder what the rest of the world would think if Christians didn't act like it was the end of the world if one candidate got voted in over another. I wonder how small we make God look when we act like he can't work if a certain human being is in office or isn't in office. You think that influences the world's perception of how much we trust God? We talk the talk. You see, refusal to submit shows a lack of trust that God will move. Refusal to submit shows, it reveals in you a lack of trust that God will move. You might not like this. I certainly don't like this, but it's true. God says the last will be first. The last will be first. In order to win, you must submit. Sometimes in order to win, you must lose. You don't believe me? Look at Jesus. Jesus proved it on the cross. He seemed to lose by every worldly metric, hanging on a cross, bleeding, suffering, he looked like he was losing. But we know that God had other plans and he was winning. God says it's the same with my people. Sometimes they got to lose in order to win. Just like Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King echoed that sentiment, he said it another way. He said that hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Can't always win. You see, God instructs this, but then what do we do? We, we dig in our heels. We dig our heels in the dirt and we pull out our swords and we say, if I submit, we'll inevitably lose. God, you're wrong on this one. You can't mean that. Is that trusting God? What are we so afraid of as American Christians? Losing some freedom? What if all your freedoms were stolen away? Would you still trust God then? What if they came for that Bible that's collecting dust on your shelf at home? 
Do you still trust God then? What if they drug you off to prison and put you in chains and threatened to kill you in the streets? Would you trust God then? These are not hypothetical scenarios. This is happening all over the world. How big is your view of God or how small is it? I'm just going to be straight with you guys. And this is not a political statement. But I'm going to be straight with you. I, I worry about the American church because we live in a country where things are so easy for us. Things are so easy for us that just a couple years ago, we thought that having to wear masks was real-world oppression. Be as mad as you want. That's not oppression. And for all the screaming and hollering that Christians did during that time, I wonder how many people came to know Jesus through all that screaming and hollering. Did we even consider that as an opportunity to show the world what real hope and peace look like? Or were we so worried about our own rights and our own liberties that we forgot that none of this is even about us in the first place? I mean, come on. Our greatest opportunity probably of our lives to testify and show the world that there is hope and peace available in the darkest moments and for the most part, Christians freaked out just as much as everyone else, if not more. What would have happened if Christians looked different from everyone else the past couple years? What if no matter what the laws looked like or no matter who was in office or no matter how far society deteriorated, that while everyone else was melting down, what if we still had hope and peace and joy? While everyone else was freaking out, what if for some strange reason none of that seemed to affect us? What if it were almost like it didn't matter what the rest of the world did because we had found something that the rest of the world hadn't found yet? I wonder if they would have become more curious about what we had found. Have you ever seen two babies like fighting over a toy? Like yanking it back and forth, just like fighting back and forth, trying to pull it out of each other's hands. And then in the midst of the struggle, one of the babies looks up and they see something in the corner, something different and special and exciting. And what do they do in that moment? They let go. In some ways, you might even say that they submit to the other child. You can have it. It's yours. And then as the child leaves and crawls over to the corner to pick up this exciting, better thing, what happens? The kid over here with the old toy starts peeking over their shoulder. What is that? What is that they have over there? It must be pretty great if they were willing to give up this. Start questioning what they have. Right now, especially in America, it seems like Christians are dead set on fighting with the rest of the world for control. They want it to look one way, and so they yank. We want it to look another way, and we yank, and we say all these nasty, vile things to them, and we try to call them out on our junk, but we never admit our junk. But then we, we just fight back and forth. But if you've read the Bible, you know that society is going to inevitably continue to get worse. We're never going to control it. It will continue to deteriorate, and then Jesus will come back and fix it. We won't. And so my question is, why are we yanking? Why are we fighting with them? God says, 
the world is going to fall apart and we say, oh, no, it's not. Not on our watch. Not if we have anything to say about it. That's fighting a losing battle. You see, when God says to submit, be it the culture, be it relationships, the government, even if they impart the worst institutions known to man, when God says to let them have it, to submit, it's not some test, and it's not because God wants you to lose or be taken advantage of. It's because he wants you to embrace something that's better than the world. Let him have the world. Crawl over to the proverbial corner and embrace something better. Embrace Jesus. They can have society, guys. We don't need it. They can have the laws. We don't need them. Our God is bigger than any institutions or mess that they can put in place. They can mess around all they want over there. We found something better. And what we found is so good it can't be taken away by their laws. It can't be taken away if you put us in chains and make us slaves. It can't even be taken away if you take our lives. We don't need your world to be happy. We found something better, and so take it. It's trash anyway. Are you tracking with me? I know it goes against every worldly instinct that we have, but what if we actually meant it when we said, you can have the world, just give me Jesus? What if we meant that? Imagine how much more peace you'd have in your life if your joy didn't depend on worldly circumstances. You can have that. Do you know what's happening right now in places in the world where Christians are being enslaved and imprisoned and killed for their faith? Do you know what's happening? The gospel is exploding. It's spreading like wildfire. People are coming to Jesus by the thousands. You know why? Because those people aren't under the illusion that they can control what's happening around them, and they don't even feel the need to because they found something so good, and the people around them are starting to notice. What if change doesn't come from control? What if change doesn't come from fighting with the world or winning arguments or being right or being louder? What if change only comes from Jesus? What if Jesus truly is that good? He is. He is. But we have to embrace him with desperation. And we have to be willing to let go of the world in the meantime as we await the return of our king, even when the world is full of brokenness. We found something better. And who knows, man, if we can do this well, maybe, just maybe, in addition to our own peace and fulfillment, maybe the rest of the country will start peeking over their shoulder and wondering about what we found. Let's pray. Lord, I just, I confess that I am not in any way good at this. I am just, I'm convicted by this as I read through this because I want things to be better. I want things to be just and, and moral and good. When it falls apart, it's so hard not to say something. It's so hard not to get involved. And I know that there are moments when we can and you've called us, but I know that we can't change things. We can't 
win like that. We can't draw out our swords and try to fight and protect and do all these things. It has to be Jesus. And I know that for me so many times, I don't know why it's easier to fight and do all these things than just to trust Jesus, God. But I know that you've called us to trust you. God, it doesn't really matter what the rest of the world, the rest of our country, our city even does. I, I, I want this so badly for our church that no matter what happens in the coming years, be it through the government or social things or economic things, that literally no matter what happens, that this group of people in this community have hope and we have peace and we have joy no matter what the world looks like because you're bigger than all of that. And I really hope that the people in the world who are hurting right now who desperately need to see you look at us and see that that's available and possible. But that only comes if we'll submit to you and we'll obey you. God, I know that I want to be and I want this church to be a community of people that even when we don't know what you're up to, are willing to submit to you because we know that you're better. That it doesn't have to make sense to us, but as long as we know it's you, that's good enough to bow down and just submit. You truly are better than everything. Jesus, I confess my own shortcomings for not trusting that as much as I should, but I know that we need you more than anything. Love you and we commit all this to you. In Jesus' name, amen.